Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of my YouTube channel, Data Science with Sam. So this is my first coffee chat series, and I invited two esteemed guests from the scientific research area. So my first guest is Efrosini Choko. So Efri actually a uh, um, postdoctoral research associate at Biller College of Medicine. So her research expertise is mainly related to cancer metabolism and bone biology and pathology. She earned her, earned her PhD in cell and molecular biology at University of Houston. Before that, she actually did her graduation at Democristo University of Trace in Greece. In her spare time, she enjoys chefing, hiking, dancing, and traveling. And also she writes poems. My second guest is Mawsam Kalita. So Mawsam had completed his PhD in organic chemistry at Kansas State University. And he also did his postdoctoral research at University of Utah. Mawsam currently is a research scientist at Stanford University. Prior to joining Stanford, he was also an um, uh, assistant research professional in the Department of um, Biomedical Imaging at University of California, San Francisco. So in spare time, Mossam loves traveling, hiking, and also he loves writing poems. Having said that, with further ado, I'm going to start the discussion for today. So my first question for Effie, so in your opinion, I mean, what is the significance of data in your scientific research? I know we all talk about the data is the main oil of any sort of research or any industry practice. And I'm from industry, I could say that data is an integral part of my work. But I want to know uh, more about that, how data is playing a crucial role in your scientific research, Effie. There is a, thank you for the question, Sam. I think there is like a, two components when it comes to data. It's the everyday little amount of data that you accumulate by doing your research. And there's also the big data from experiments such as RNA-seq, for example, which you generate a ton of data, which you personally, you cannot analyze without the statistics and software that we have in place because of uh, computational models and these collaborative efforts between bioinformaticians who do not do wet lab research mm -hmm. and the researchers that, just like me, who is every day using their tools to generate a little bit of an amount of data. Uh, so I think it's such a huge deal to be able to accumulate the data and record the data and also having a chance to go back to the data so you can see once your research has progressed whether something has changed in your conception. So I think, for example, having artificial intelligence in place where maybe it's trained in a way that it can go and track backwards all your accomplishment, all your data, that might be very useful in the future to be able to not miss a thing because a lot of times you might have done an experiment you don't understand at some point, then you move on to the next phase. If you could bring back immediately all the information, yes, but you sometimes can. So I think analyzing the big data or even the daily data and tracking them, I think it's a, a big uh, part of our life and we see it more and more now that we are uh, combining all the omics data mm -hmm. and the tremendous uh, improvements in understanding that we have from doing those type of analysis but it's a combination of uh, different disciplines because I think without uh, the help of uh, bioinformaticians or statisticians we cannot really 
conclude much. And of course, we need improvements. We need still to work towards uh, pipelines that, that can be more useful. That's relatable because collecting the data and making some kind of a pattern or meaning out of the data is one of the best, uh, I guess, the practice which bioinformatician and biostatistician are kind of capable of doing. And it's good to know that um, your research area, you usually get help from them to collect the data and how we can formulate it into in a kind of a statistical way. So that, that kind of like whether it's coming up with a p-value or doing any sort of t-test or something, exactly. I guess, is really on the biostatistician. For basic uh, analysis, of course, mm-hmm. we are able to do it. But then there are other things, for example, that I don't have the training. Uh, for example, I wish I had uh, a coding expertise so I can do the analysis, but I, I lack that. So and on the other hand, we need also more biologists who are also bioinformaticians, like mm. that they understand both worlds very well, because I think a lot of times we might be missing points because the bioinformatician doesn't know the biology behind of the experiment. So he does give you the big data, but we have a little bit of a wall between us. So I think in the future, this multidisciplinary type of efforts or having all the PhDs learning how to code and be excellent in it, I think is where we should be going, I think, in the yeah. future. That's, that's a really a valid point because that's also one of the main essence of uh, the importance of growing need for the data scientists nowadays. Um, like there are certain areas I've seen that uh, uh, an employee with a domain matter expertise, they are moving into the data science field by learning some programming language. Um, so I, I understand your uh, thought process over there. Just once a research scientist would be proficient, efficient in um, R and Python, they can actually perform a lot of uh, analysis, analytical stuff by themselves. So in that case, you don't have to rely on biostatistics and bioinformatics. Thanks, Afi, for your feedback on these things. So I'm going to move to Mossam, and I want to get his opinion on that how the data plays a very significant role in his uh, research area. Uh, thank you, Sam, for having me. And um, Afi brought a very interesting point, and I, I totally agree with her that um, there is a huge explosion of data right now, and especially with so many modern instruments uh, that can give you high-throughput output. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> However, my research, um, I come from organic chemistry background. So I do a lot of organic synthesis. And right now I'm doing radiochemistry and, um, and also targeting especially brain. So to make small molecules, which can cross blood-brain barrier and um, go to the brain. So in all these three aspects, like organic synthesis, radiochemistry, and designing tracer for um, brain, need some kind of predictive ability. Um, And as you know, in uh, organic chemistry, we make different bonds. So basically the uh, traditional way of designing uh, a a molecule is you basically start from the target uh, and then you see which bond you should break first and you basically work backward. The pattern, you know, like trying to uh, trace back the pattern. Right, and it's called retro uh, synthesis, and uh, it was started by Easy Corey um, in 1960s. And until now, that was the uh, main way for organic chemists to design uh, organic synthesis. So you look at a molecule and see how you can break the molecule into smaller pieces, and um, what starting material you can start with. 
Um, and also you look at which um, molecules will have, you know, like give you the optimum yield. You know, some reaction give you better yield than others. So there are a huge number of uh, reactions already being done in the literature. So recently people have put all this information mm-hmm. um, and developed some, uh, you know, Database or something, yeah. Right, right. And um, there is also a few papers that came out for um, artificial intelligence in organic synthetic plant, which is actually not that easy um, because um, there are so many different constraints that are applied. For example, um, you need to have, uh, these molecules have to be metabolically stable, um, it should be pH sense, you know, like uh, stable at various pHs. Um, and even with all these constraints, um, some of these, rea- you know, synthetic plants have been uh, well developed. Um, and um, when organic chemistry are given two set of information, you know, like synthetic plant, one developed by the machine and one developed by human being, um, it's a blind experiment. And uh, organic chemists couldn't distinguish between the two and they think that you know either of the two work better. So AI has done a really good progress even in organic synthetic scheme development, which is basically not that easy. And I'm pretty sure with time, it will be even better. Now I'll come to the second part, which is radiochemistry. So the difference between normal organic synthesis and radiochemistry is that in radiochemistry, we label a radioactive isotope, for example, fluorine 18 or carbon 11 um, on a molecule so that we can visualize the tracer um, via positron emission tomography. And this is what we do regularly here uh, for uh, PET CT scan, we make this tracer and um, we visualize cancer, we visualize Parkinson's disease or uh, Alzheimer's disease and other different um, pathologies. But one most important thing about radiochemistry is that the radio labeling step has to be the last or a penultimate step. So you have to design in such a way that um, fluorine 18 or carbon 11 labeling should be the last step. That means the normal organic synthetic scheme has to be modified in such a way that um, you label that compound in your final uh, step. So um, there has been some progress done, not much. Um, A recent paper came out from uh, University of Michigan in Peter Scott lab. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, I think that this is probably the first paper of its own kind. And they used machine learning to uh, predict the, the scheme for um, radiochemical synthesis. Mm-hmm. Um, the final part, which I'm working on uh, right now here is uh, developing molecules which can cross blood brain barrier and goes to the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, there are several uh, strict criteria uh, for that. Uh, like, you know, you need to look at the lipophilicity of the molecule then you have to look at the distribution coefficient of the molecule. Then this molecule has to be uh, also has certain PKA value, and, and um, there has to be topological polar surface area. So the, all these constraints are there on this small molecule to cro- cross the blood-brain barrier, mm-hmm. and plus that molecule 
has to hit the right target. It cannot be off target. Um, so for that, uh, here in Stanford, in Michelle Zam's lab, uh, they are developing machine learning program mm-hmm. uh, to predict which molecules should we uh, hone on um, for blood-brain barrier penetration. Um, however, um, the predictive ability of this program is still unknown. And one of the biggest problem that we face as a scientific community as a whole is we do not have much negative data in the literature. Because when you have only positive data, it's very difficult to um, develop a system yes. um, because you need to put both positive and negative data. You won't so be that, able to perform the sensitivity and specificity test if you don't have negative, yeah. Right, right. Um, and, uh, but still we are moving forward in that direction. And uh, as you know, FDA already has approved a lot of radio tracers these days mm-hmm. for imaging, especially um, for neurodegenerative diseases um, because we do not have many tracers for early detection of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis. So this will be great help if the scientific community as a whole, um, you know, put this positive and negative data somewhere so that, you know, we can develop a much better program. That's true. I mean, what I understand from your, I mean, that's really very informative for us to know that, you know, like there are so many efforts been going on to bring artificial intelligence or machine learning in the chemistry area, because, you know, for me, I'm not an organic chemistry expert, but for me, organic chemistry is more of, again, finding the pattern, finding the bond and everything. And that's where I guess a machine learning or AI could be beneficial. Maybe it will break the barrier of the human um, intervention and they can maybe they'll be able to predict a lot of thing in future. Like recently I was reading this paper, uh, nature paper. It was kind of like a big breakthrough that deep minds, uh, one of the AI companies did um, creating kind of an alpha fold, a software, which will be able to like uh, predict the, bam, you know, the uh, protein bands. Uh, so, so that's kind of like a very significant uh, breakthrough in, in uh, scientific uh, research area driven by machine learning. So yeah, I mean, in future, I am um, pretty sure there'll be more efforts will become, but at the end, I guess it's all about the data as Mossam just mentioned, he basically touched upon a really in, important point. It's not about like having a data. It's all about, also sometimes it's about the data quality. Like, as you mentioned that, you know, you don't actually have the negative data because that's also a very important factor. And that literally uh, brings me to my next question to Effie. So how much do you emphasize on the data quality? Like data is nothing, you know, so many times we can get big data, but the amount of time we spend to find out which data would be relevant to your research and which one you can just literally opt out. So how would you determine that? Is it something you use your scientific expertise to determine? mind the data quality and just clean the data before you put it in your research work especially so some just to before we move to this uh, question mm-hmm. and answer i would like to point out that you know there is a lot of investors who has already like mm-hmm. invested a lot of money in companies who are actually doing exactly that ai mm-hmm. uh, predicting drugs small molecules and uh, one of them actually is uh, started from Utah in um, Salt Lake City called Recursion Pharma, which has in, uh, raised a lot of uh, millions and mm-hmm. he has expanded even in Canada. And the other one is Schrodinger, which has uh, also 
done a lot of fundraising, funding, uh, raising efforts, and they mm. are very promising uh, for the future of uh, drug discovery because they have these platforms mm. where the AI can predict every single molecule that we could not do it even with high throughput techniques in the lab. That's so, true. but that is actually because of the data quality. So going there. <laughs> Watson also did that. IBM's so Watson. They when it comes to chemistry, you know exactly how those molecules are interacting with each other. So mm-hmm. that um, is really a good feed for the AI to give you to give you the right answers. When it comes to biology, we also have mm-hmm. QC in place, especially when we do uh, big data analysis. However, um, there is heterogeneity because of genetic and it makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, it's the same struggle that we have when we use animal models, also with patient samples, like you have different genetic background sometimes, or just it happens. But we do still have QC in place. Like for example, let's say you do prepare samples to do an omics analysis. You will um, double check in multiple steps, the quality of what you selected as the source to the final steps. So I think that ensures quality, but however, you know, biology is unpredictable. Sometimes science is unpredictable. So um, compared to chemistry, uh, biology is, I would say a little bit more challenging, but still, uh, especially for the big data, there are QC in place. And even when it comes to the everyday um, experiments, of course, we, try to follow the steps of an SOP. So we have standard protocols that we must follow. True. And if you you somehow go around it or you do something different, you have to note it down because what if that experiment give you the best uh, results? You need to know. And that goes again to how can you ensure the best quality? The best quality would come, as I told you earlier, I think one of the points is that you need to be able to capture every moment when you're experimenting. Mm-hmm. Is that possible? Maybe in the future with um, tools like um, a combination of a GoPro with AI, let's say, that is looking at you when you're doing the experiment and mm-hmm. it's documenting every single step. Mm-hmm. M- might be one way of uh, making sure that you're not missing something. I think that you actually uh, kind of like mentioned a very valid point, especially talking about you just mentioned that uh, in the biology area, sometimes it's possible that you don't have the classifier. Like, I mean, in machine learning world, we have a thing called unsupervised learning. So in the unsupervised learning, I think it's kind of uh, becoming very popular in the biology world where you don't actually have the labels or classifier. The data is like you actually have a kind of a very sparse data set. And they're using some kind of clustering technique in the uh, first to come up with that, how they can group some data points with a similar nature. I mean, that is something you know, maybe, yeah, go ahead. Please. We do actually uh, perform blinding experiments. Mm-hmm. For example, mm-hmm. uh, a very beautiful example I have is uh, one of my collaboration with one of my mm-hmm. friends. He developed a software. I did the staining of these mm-hmm. tissues and I gave him the stained tissues and he analyzed he was blinded. He didn't know who was who. But because of the robustness, the repetitiveness, he was able to cluster. And he told me, I think this is your mutant and this is your wild type. So I was <laughs> impressed, but it's the way to do it. So we usually do practice also blinding and blinding, randomization okay. because mm-hmm. these are required uh, 
uh, analysis to avoid bias, of course, and mm -hmm. increase reproducibility and rigor in our research. Because as I mentioned, you have outliers, so you might not be able to see the whole picture sometimes, but uh, data is data, so we trust the data. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whichever the way you can give some meaning to the data will be useful for any time. Exactly. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's good to know about this blinding technique. It's kind of from our technique, technology standpoint, I would consider it's kind of like a segmentation stuff. You know, you're basically like segmenting the data set into like different groups to find out the pattern or something. That's very important, you know, like important, I guess, for research, to, you know, help you out in the further analysis. Um, so, yeah, thanks for the information, Effie. So, if you also mentioned another important uh, things it's called the ethical practice of uh, AI and machine learning, which is also becoming a very um, sensitive matter right now. It's not about uh, industry or science. People are trying to understand that how our research or you know, our AI artificial intelligence tool or machine learning tool will follow certain protocol or rules and regulation. So we have some guidelines or something in our industry practices, but uh, I want to know more about if you guys, if any of you have some insight about what kind of ethical practices and artificial intelligence or machine learning tool will follow in the research. So I'm gonna actually ask Mossam for that since Mossam you mentioned uh, there are some efforts or going on to build some machine learning tool in your area. So is there any kind of guidelines those machine learning tool are using from ethical practice standpoint? Well, um, from ethical standpoint, I think it's from the research, we make sure that we have quality control in our place, like mm -hmm. Effie mentioned in her biological research. Mm -hmm. And um, so from our side, when we generate data, we make sure that our data are reliable, reproducible, and um, the, the data that we are feeding to the machine should um, you can use it reliably. Um, so for, for ethical purpose, I mean, uh, from the AI standpoint, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like, um, what kind of ethical um, information uh, that AI can practice? Probably um, data scientists can shed more light on it. From our side, we make sure that we have our quality control in our place. For example, when we do um, make molecules, we have um, like NMR and mass spec and SPLC, all these um, quality control processes are applied uh, to determine the structure of the molecule. Um, however, from the chemistry standpoint, um, data generation is painfully slow because we have to make the molecules and making molecule takes longer time and we do not have any like high throughput reaction. I mean, we have some high throughput reaction, but um, mostly you apply those reactions at the end. If you have, for example, 10-step synthesis, you will apply that high-throughput reaction probably in the step 9 or step 10 to build a library of the molecules. Generally, you do not um, make a library at the beginning. So for first eight step, synthesis will be slow, and then you can proliferate on, that, uh, on the building block. Yeah. Um, but again, I think the big problem here is um, 
the risk of repeating someone's failed reaction. Like if I do not know this reaction failed somewhere in the literature, I will repeat it. Mm-hmm. And that basically slows me down. And also that slow down the whole data generation process. Um, so I think it's important that we report both positive and negative. You can put the positive data in your main manuscript and you can put your you know, like negative data in the supplementary information, mm-hmm. that should be fine too. And to Effie's point, I agree, like uh, it's even more complicated in biology because right now I'm working at the cross-section of chemistry and biology because we make molecules and then we apply in biological system. For example, when we make tracer, we inject in mice uh, with some disease model. And after that, we image the mice through PET scanner. Then we will uh, utilize the mice, take harvest different organs, and we'll do cryosectioning of, the, uh, in, of these organs and see the penetration of this tracer and the binding of this tracer in this organ. So these are incredibly complicated and reproducibility in biological system is harder than chemistry because in chemistry, you're working in more like artificial condition um, where all these solvents, you know, are already defined. However, in biological system, you have a defined system evolved for millions of years. You do not play around with pH of the system or blood brain barrier. And even if you (laughs) manipulate that, that will be a um, artificial system, not the, you know, normal, uh, like natural system. So um, yeah, but uh, to your point, going back to your, um, the ethical question uh, from the research side, we do our best Mm -hmm. to um, have all quality control in place before reporting that data to public or to uh, our peers. I mean, that's very important for me to know as a data scientist, if I would be indulged into any sort of activities, I need to know that ethical practice that you, you know, your research scientists follow. Like I need to get some insight about the quality control and that will actually bridge the gap. So I think that's kind of a very important because even if a data scientist or in a biostatistics or bioinformatics will in, engage in building any AI or machine learning tool, they still need to understand the domain expertise. We need to have some understanding of your quality control or your, you know, some insights about your research. Otherwise, it will be a little difficult for anyone to you know, comprehend the full aspect of the requirement. So that's kind of like brings me to the last question for this discussion. So it's question to Effie. So since now we are seeing that AI and machine learning is kind of coming into the picture, maybe it's going to help out the research scientists in future and kind of just uh, eliminate the um, kind of like limitation, which uh, a human won't be able to analyze in quicker succession, like whether it's IBM Watson or any sort of machine learning tool developed by any Silicon Valley companies, it, maybe it will be beneficial for research scientists in future to carry out their analy- analysis and other sort of work in a quicker fashion. So, so what do you think about like how the future, I mean, in your opinion, how the future would look like that, how technology kind of, um, advancement will actually take science, scientific research to the next level? Say, suppose, you know, 10 years, 15 years down the line, do you think that all the, you know, the daily routines you do, the their cultural taste or any sort of stuff, that kind of stuff could be uh, automated or you will get some help from a machine or AI bot, which can help you to like, you know, run those kind of research in future. Do you envision that? It's a very good question. I mean, Hmm. 
we let our imagination go wild, the way I see it is that you have like this uh, touch screen and the eye is running on the background, every experiment I input. And then it tells me, remember in 2018, you did this experiment. Now that you input this new information, I can tell you what it says. You cured cancer, let's say. <laughs> so in other words, like overall, like having the whole picture and me, yes, my hard drive will forget things, but the AI is running constantly and making the connections that I need. And then tells me, your next experiment should be this based on all the information you inputted. And also having the AI observing me doing the experiments and monitoring every step, let's say, that is documenting all of that, then the AI itself knows what happened and what was the output so then it gives you the future experiments and also a holistic view of your data so i think that will be amazing uh, another thing that i still think that ai might be lacking is that uh, indeed sometimes you need also the critical thinking but you also need uh, and unbiased thinking of course of the ai but you also need the creativity because i think in biology a lot of times we have to be creative of what else is there and because in the AI, we are just feeding what we know. So we already have a bias that we are giving there. Coming back to your ethical question, we are inputting some bias because it's what we found. But in, in all honesty, we don't really know every single aspect of the biology that we are studying. So I think we still need to have also the human component. So if you have read some red books for the future, they say that researchers, they will still be around because they are creative and nurses, they will be around because they are caring and AI cannot really do a very good job there yeah. yet. So I think in the future, I see that I will be using AI for the analysis, for what is next and kind of like consulting. It's going to be my consultant. Um, and maybe we'll have bots to help us in the lab with uh, manual handling of uh, specimens. So that will be actually very useful. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's good. that's where like I see the future is, and then combining the data, combining the data in an unbiased method. Uh, but uh, how close or far we are, I don't know. I think, uh, as I said, and Masam also mentioned, not having all the negative data as well is a problem. And um, I, to be honest with you, how can you input all the negative data? Because who's going to publish it? And the second part is. Um, how can you ensure that it was negative because it's really negative or it's negative because of uh, a technical yeah I mean defining the benchmark or like you know yeah. it's, it's like completely diff so difficult can, yeah. I, I think that's a challenge right there maybe you guys have some ideas on how to overcome but I, I find that the negative data you don't you're not sure sometimes you doubt yes with exception if we have like robots handling things so because i mean what i understand like biology is again a continuously evolving field i mean still yeah. we are trying to unravel the mystery of nature yeah. and there will be there will be things that we have not even fed the eye so the eye cannot really come up with something new because mm. it's about the patterns that it's seeing already in the files maybe it can be creative i mean predicting but it might skip or might not see some things because it, has, it doesn't have the whole picture. Not to, not that we have, but we are discovering a little bit by little bit every day. So, yeah, 
I mean, that you literally mentioned you know, a very valid point, the kind of a limitation of AI, because from data science perspective, when we build a model in AI model, so we actually have to train the model. But the training the model is basically based on the scene data set. But when you don't have an, like when you have an unforeseen data set, that's where actually the main issue come, that how your model would be like a very accurate on the unforeseen, because that scenario, that biological phenomena never happened before, but it could possibly, it could happen in future, but how your AI would have that. So I think that's kind of like a limitation and the main reason we still have to rely on our human, you know, intellectual, because that consciousness, uh, that uh, ability, AI will still, AI will, will be, never be able to equip, you know, it doesn't matter whether Boston Dynamics come up with a better robot in future, which they can dance on Elvis Presley's song or something, but they still have some limitation which, uh, for which, you know, we need to have a kind of a human-driven AI system. I think the main thing is we need we should leverage AI for future research, but it should be a human-driven AI process. Rather, just an AI will take over everything, and so, that's where a lot of uh, I guess uh, now people are raising eyebrows that AI is going to take over human jobs. But that's not the case. Rather, AI will enable us to find something or maybe explore more things in science area. We will keep retraining for sure. <laughs> and I think that let's say in 10 years from now, on when I'll be 45, let's say, I will have for sure the need to be trained to use AI in my job. I, I, I predict that that's going to be something for a lot of us, but we're going to still have some jobs. Of, of course, definitely. Yeah. And uh, so, Mossam, for the same question, I would like to hear your perspective as well to wrap up this discussion. Thanks, Sam. Um, yeah, I think uh, Effie has already touched upon most of the things that I wanted to say. But um, <laughs> from our standpoint, um, I worked with one of the professors here in um, UCSF. Uh, she is a pathologist. And um, so what she did, she tr uh, trained the machine that shows different slides of tissues, you know, like uh, diseased uh, tissue and non-diseased tissue and uh, the predictability and also the diagnostic capability of this um, uh, of this AI is amazing. I mean, they are uh, more than 90%. They are, in some cases, they are even better than human to diagnose whether um, the tissue is diseased or not. So um, in a lot of these cases, I think AI has made tremendous progress, no doubt about that. However, from the chemistry side, I think it's a little bit more complicated. It just started to pick up. And recently a paper came out from Munster, Germany, where they actually have this AI and let the uh, AI learn by itself, you know? Um, and they found that um, in developing organic chemistry synthetic scheme, um, this system did incredible job. You know, they can um, basically design a synthesis um, and scientists can reproduce it in the lab. And this machine basically learned by itself. So um, they are making tremendous progress, but I do think uh, human interference will always be required uh, to develop novel reactions or, you know, um, to develop um, completely uh, give like more creative idea to uh, AI. Um, when we do 
radio chemistry side, I don't think AI can run. I mean, it will probably be able to run in future, maybe in 20, 30 years. I don't know. But right now, uh, we have to do it by ourselves because it's radioactive. And I do not know how much we can trust the machine uh, to run radioactive reaction and uh, we just go home and take a nap. I don't think uh, we can do that because uh, radioactivity is a serious situation. Um, so we will need um, human being to be there um, to solve, or also to you know direct the AI how what kind of reactions need to be carried out and when purification need to be done and at what time point we should collect um, the tracer and then deliver it to human being. So overall, I think um, AI has made tremendous progress and it will make more progress as you know, time passes. Uh, but I believe we will always need human being to take the next step. You know, definitely uh, from the from the inno- innovation standpoint. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, you actually mentioned a really valid point about the radioactivity. It's like the risk involved in the process. So sometimes I guess we can't trust an AI tool hundred percent when we have such high risk involved in some process because anything could be possible. And even if uh, our model would provide um, 100% accuracy that in like our AI could handle in radioactive test, but I don't think so we can literally in a hundred percent confident that that tool would be able to, you know, uh, run any radioactive test in any circumstances. So that kind of uh, risk will always be involved. And in that case, we definitely need a human being or a research scientist be there who will basically foresee that process or guide that AI tool to perform that operation. So yeah, I mean, that's kind of like brings me to an end of this discussion. So thank you for uh, all the information and provide your perspective on how like artificial intelligence and machine learning or even data could be beneficial for the scientific research. I know we have, we are not there yet. I mean, hopefully in future, there'll be more technological advancement we could see in the scientific research that help you scientists like you in biology and in chemistry area. But uh, we will see how things will come along in future. But thanks for your time. Thanks for joining my uh, YouTube channel. So just for my viewers, if you have any sort of like a research paper or any articles where you could basically provide some example of um, the implementation of AI and machine learning. So it'll be great if you can share with me and then I can just uh, share with my my viewers because I'm pretty sure the data science community will get a lot of benefit out of it since uh, from a data science standpoint, we do not have more exposure to the subject matter uh, related to scientific research, whether it's biology, chemistry, or physics. So we need a more collaboration with the scientists to bridge that gap in future. And I'm pretty sure in future, um, and a scientist also get uh, uh, acquainted with the data science when they will get more domain expertise and um, become more efficient in um, writing programming language. So thanks, Mossam and Effie. Thanks for your time and thanks for joining my first coffee chat. And for my viewers, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to my channel because more coffee chat series featuring industry experts are forthcoming. And thanks, Effie and Mossam, one more time. So that's all for now. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Effie. Thanks for having us. Nice to see you.